listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It is season five. I hope you're staying healthy in these crazy, tragic, unfortunate, frustrating times we're living in. We're bringing the show back a little earlier than we thought, uh, maybe to provide your quarantine with some Ohio history and something to look forward to every other Sunday from now until Election Day. We are back, and for an entire season this election year, about Ohio and the presidency will be the theme for this season. Ohio being the mother of presidents with eight presidents born or from Ohio. We're tied with Virginia for the most in the country. We've got incredible guests, uh, multiple guests we'll have on uh, every episode. It's going to be a really fun season. We'll mix in some podcasts about different presidential subjects, not just about the eight presidents. You know, We'll have one about the first ladies from Ohio and things like presidential conventions that have taken place in Ohio, campaign moments, debates. Uh, we'll bring in presidents like Lincoln and FDR, Theodore Roosevelt, and many, many others. You can go back and listen to our preview episode from last week to hear about some of the other topics we'll be discussing in 2020. Uh, definitely go back and listen to that. But this is part one of a two-part episode today on probably the most consequential of the Ohio presidents, our 25th president, William McKinley from Canton, Ohio. We have five fantastic guests. We'll We'll introduce them as we go. So there's just a lot to get to uh, on McKinley, and we're going to take you on this two-part journey about how a middle-class college dropout from Northeast Ohio becomes the President of the United States, and then how McKinley becomes one of the most popular presidents of all time, only to be struck down at the height of his power during his second term. We'll follow this one man as he takes America from second-rate power on the international stage to the dawn of the American century. Without further ado, let's get started. It's part one of William McKinley vs. the World. As we mentioned in the preview episode, we've just been floored by how many of some of our favorite authors have been able to join us. We've reached out and they've responded and donated their time uh, to tell the story of these presidents and of all of our commander-in-chiefs. Our first guest is a presidential historian and biographer, Robert Mary. He wrote two of my favorite U.S. history books uh, of the last 10 years, a book called Country, A Country of Vast Designs about James Polk, the Mexican War, and you know Manifest Destiny. And his most recent book from late 2017 called President McKinley, Architect of the American Century uh, from the folks at Simon & Schuster. Bob had quite a career as a reporter, political reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he ran the Congressional Quarterly CQ uh, out of Washington, D.C., which you now, now might know as uh, Roll Call. He's been on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, you name it, he's done it. And he's a great guy, fantastic author, uh, biographer. We started by asking him, you know, why does President McKinley not get the respect for all these great events in U.S. history that he was a part of when he was the 25th president? Many historians have acknowledged that, yes, big things happened during the 
McKinley presidency, um, we acquired Hawaii, which was a huge strategic move. We fought and won the Spanish-American War in three months. We acquired uh, territories overseas, really for the first time, became an empire. Uh, all those things uh, took place, and that was that was all very huge. Um, and yet uh, McKinley doesn't very often get full credit for what happened on his own watch. And the thesis seems to be, and I call it the leaf in the wind, that he was, in fact, the leaf in the wind, that he simply, um, that these events kind of washed over him and that he was sort of, sort of the passive recipient of forces uh, that he didn't really control and didn't really understand, and they just moved the country beyond his own leadership. I studied the man and wrote the major biography of him, and it just simply isn't true. He he was not a flamboyant leader. He wasn't a man of force, but he was a man of, or, or, or I should say overt force, but he was a man of quiet force that always seemed to get his way and always seemed to be moving um, events in the direction that he favored. William McKinley Jr. is born in 1843. His parents meet in Northeast Ohio in the early years of the, this great state, a middle-class Irish family. Our next guest is Amber Ferris. She's the museum director at the McKinley Birthplace Museum in Niles, Ohio. Niles, uh, kind of in between Warren and Youngstown in Northeast Ohio. A great museum documenting McKinley's life and has a lot of his papers and artifacts. But Amber tells us about the McKinley family growing up in and around the Youngstown area. So Niles, Ohio is in Trumbull County. It's right on the border of Pennsylvania. It's part of the original Western Reserve. Uh, so it's one of the most early settled areas of Ohio. His father, William McKinley Sr., meeting his mother, Nancy Allison, in Lisbon, which is in Columbiana County. The McKinleys were working class. They considered themselves abolitionists. One of the ways that we know that they were wealthier is than most of the other people is that they could afford books and um, educational options for their children. So when they had the opportunity to, and they heard about a better school in Poland, Ohio, so that's that middle county between Lisbon um, and Columbiana and Niles and Trumbull, they moved to Poland, Ohio because they had more than a one-room schoolhouse, but they actually had an academy for children to go to with actual grades. In 1859, McKinley goes to Allegheny College, just over the border in Meadville, Pennsylvania. And Amber tells us a, a funny story uh, about his really short time at Allegheny College and why he ultimately dropped out or left the school in 1860. And she has an interesting theory on whether he dropped out or whether he was kicked out. They send William to Allegheny. He does exactly one semester. The official storyline written in biographies or in the kind in the kinder writings is that he uh, had a nervous disorder. He had a lot of anxiety, but the story that I hear from Allegheny grads, you'd be surprised at the amount of them that I end up meeting, is that one of their most famous pranks on campus was actually done by William McKinley. The story goes, cows can climb upstairs, but cows cannot climb downstairs. And that William and one of his pals climbed the stairs at the bell tower with a cow and left it at the top and that prompted them to be kicked out of Allegheny. Now, we don't know if that's actually true because, you know, there weren't photos or anything, but it's a great story and it makes you like him a little bit more because you don't often hear many, there are literally no other prank stories about William. 
Our, our third guest here today is, we found out, was a listener to the show after we reached out. And we're definitely going to have to have Kevin back on the show because he was a wealth of knowledge. We sat down with professor of history at the University of Akron, Kevin Kern. Kevin, the author of Ohio, A History of the Buckeye State. He talked to us about the presidential rankings of Ohio presidents and how McKinley, our president today, is universally the highest ranked of all the Ohio presidents. Of course, most historians do concur with this. You know, that every now and then, every few years or so, historians have a kind of navel-gazing exercise where they uh, they rank all the presidents, and which I actually think often says more about the historians than it says about the presidents. But uh, one of the things that just keeps coming um, again and again is the fact that McKinley tends to rank the highest among the Ohio presidents, usually somewhere in the top 20, but almost never in the top 10. A historian would be hard-pressed to, to get me to agree that there's 10 more consequential presidents than William McKinley. I will explain later why, you know, why I feel that way here in these next, two, uh, these next two episodes. But William McKinley is home in Poland, Ohio. He's got not a lot to do. In that rudderless period of his life, we'll talk to Amber Ferris about how it doesn't last long once shots are fired at Fort Sumter in 1861. What I think would we consider now like a quarter life crisis, but he was having it as a teenager. Life expectancies were shorter. We'll pretend <laughs> like that. Um, he doesn't know what he wants to do. And he comes home to recover and he works as a school teacher for one semester at what is called the Kerr School in Poland, Ohio. So it's one of the one room schoolhouses that still exists. By the time he was ready to go back to school, though, dad's investments hadn't been doing so well and his foundry was lagging. So he wasn't able to pay for William to go back to school. And it's the 1850s. There was no uh, student loan, a federal student loan situation or grants. Your parents just paid for you to go. The Civil War breaks out. And that's when he makes a decision to join up. Now, his father's the first person not to have fought in some sort of military skirmish or engagement since the family arrived in the United States. So he thought it was really important to take part in this. William McKinley and his cousin, actually named William McKinley Osborne, they hear a speech in town uh, in Poland by a local attorney, Charles Glyden. He spoke on the steps of the Sparrow House Tavern, asking men to enlist to heed Lincoln's call, a call for three-month enlistments. That's how short they thought the war with the South would be, 90-day enlistments. When he arrives in Columbus uh, to, to go to Camp Jackson, he finds himself there, and there's no more three-month enlistments. He must decide whether to enlist for three years or the duration of the war, whichever is longer. Whatever happened to whatever is shorter. Um, but he and his cousin, uh, William McKinley Osborne, they sign up. And by the next year, William McKinley is at the bloodiest battle of the war, the Battle of Antietam in Maryland, September 17, 1862, a battle that had 22,000 casualties. It's recognized as a Union victory. I put that word victory in quotations. So there were no real winners that day. But McKinley distinguishes himself in that battle, and it begins his rise to the presidency. He's commissary in the war. He has the role of taking and serving food and getting people taken care of. And at the Battle of Antietam, they had pulled back, and there were a bunch of people bloodied and dying on the battlefield. And he took it upon himself to lead a wagon out there 
ironically, he has a, an ancestor who was considered a wagon master, but he takes this wagon out there full of food and coffee to take care of battled and bloodied people. And this simple act, because he did it against, he actually did that against Hayes's orders, I believe. But it's interesting, the uh, people who work at Antietam, the park rangers, I've met a couple and they call the William McKinley statue that's dedicated at the battlefield the William McKinley coffee break statue. It's an interesting thing. He does prefer the title of Major McKinley for the rest of his days, so he prefers that over president. McKinley, in the, he's in the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. He rode that wagon to these pinned down men uh, dodging artillery and gunfire to get them food and coffee. It said an, an older veteran, when he saw him arriving, said, God bless that lad. He moves into Rutherford B. Hayes' staff. He serves at the Battle of Buffington Island, uh, the only battle on Ohio soil in 1863, part of Morgan's raid in the summer of 63. You can go listen to our episode, Ohio vs. the Confederacy. That's from our first season uh, on the story of when the war came to Ohio in Morgan's raid, a great story. Uh, one of our favorite old episodes. He's nearly killed at the Battle of Cedar Creek in Kernstown, another where he's he's nearly wounded, and becomes a brevet major. But at the war's end, the major is again without a plan. We talked to Amber Ferris about post-war William McKinley and his move to Canton, Ohio. So after he musters out of the Civil War, he comes back home to Poland at that point, his older sister, Anna, is teaching um, high school. She's actually the principal of the high school in Canton, Ohio. So that's in Stark County. She's talking to him about what he's going to do with his future because he seriously does not know what he's going to do. He moves to Albany and studies law there for a year in an actual law school. But then when he is done with that, without having graduated, he moves back to Poland, Ohio where he studies under Judge Glyden, who's a famous Poland judge. It's after that he's able to pass the bar in Trumbull County, so back where he was born. Uh, and when he passes the bar, he decides to move to Canton, Ohio, over in Stark County, where his sister already lived. The rest of his family does follow him out there. When he gets there, he opens a law practice, um, and he starts ingratiating himself into Canton society. He joins yeah. all of the right clubs, starts meeting all of the right people. He ends up meeting a woman named Ida Saxton. Ida is the daughter of the owner of the major bank in town. Uh, she has recently taken her grand tour of Europe. She is a socialite um, at that time, but she also works at the bank for her dad. Uh, when her dad would go away, she was actually promoted to bank manager. Uh, shortly after they got together, they got married, and it was a very typical high society type of affair because you have William, who's upper middle class at this point, and Ida, who's definitely upper class, uh, getting together. It was a big to-do. McKinley moves to Canton, Ohio, uh, now about the eighth largest city in Ohio, 70-some thousand folks in northeast Ohio, south of Cleveland, about an hour, uh, just right down the road from Akron. He meets and marries the upper-class darling of Canton, Ida Saxton. They marry in 1871. Ida was actually engaged to another veteran a few years before. Her sister and her go on this European vacation, like a six-month trip they had 
They had money with her father owning the bank. But while in Europe on this amazing trip, her fiancé dies. This would change both hers and William's life. William McKinley was fiercely devoted to his wife. If you look at the statue in front of the Ohio State House, he's facing towards High Street at the place where he and Ida lived across the street, uh, a place called the Neal House. Now it's a skyscraper, the Huntington Center. But Kevin tells us about his ritual to pay homage to Ida when he was governor of Ohio, the trials and tribulations that would befall the vibrant and, and very you know outgoing Iris Saxton and the McKinleys in the early years of their marriage. We'll talk more in depth about Ida with Amber and others. Uh, she has some great insight into her life, and we'll share those stories as part of our First Ladies episode coming up later this season. And this is, I think, part of McKinley's public appeal at the time was, was because he so clearly and and uh, publicly, deeply loved and doted on Ida Saxton McKinley. Uh, <clears throat> And, you know, it's it, it really is very tragic. I mean, uh, Ida, boy, you, you hate to see anyone go through this. The wheels really began to came, come off the wagon for Ida during a, just a dreadful two-year period early in their marriage. Ida's mother, she'd been very close to her. She dies two weeks before she was supposed to give birth to her second child. And that's bad enough, losing your mother. But then... Uh, Ida injures herself, falling out of a carriage when she attended her mother's funeral, which seems to have done some damage to her head and her spine. And from that point on, she suffered from some lameness in one leg and uh, uh, periodic epileptic seizures. Uh, As if all that were bad enough, she has a difficult delivery and her infant daughter, which she names Ida after her deceased mother, uh, dies just a few months later. And then... A couple of years later, her other child, Katie, dies of fever at the age of three. So bam, 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 bam. She gets hit by these terrible events, is absolutely devastated, both emotionally and physically, and becomes deeply dependent on William for the rest of their marriage. As governor, uh, he had this little ritual every day that at an appointed time in the morning and afternoon, uh, he would go out to the plaza in front of the Capitol building in Columbus. He looked up to the window of their residence, which is just across the street, and he takes off his hat towards her, uh, and she waves back to him. And it's a, a sweet marital gesture, of course, but it was actually also his way to check up on her regularly. So he has this public, very public persona of a devoted husband that makes him all the more popular, especially among women. Uh, and as his good friend Marcus Hanna once said, President McKinley has made it pretty hard for the rest of us husbands here in Washington. Uh, Says such a high bar for being a doting husband. Wayne McKinley's first foray into politics is when he's making speeches on behalf of his friend and mentor from the war, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, who's running for governor in 1867. He becomes the prosecutor in Stark County, I think, in 69, and the major, uh, the major begins moving up the ranks of the Ohio GOP. We bring back Robert Mary, the best-selling historian, to talk about the four major players in Ohio politics in McKinley's era of the 1870s, 1880s, one of which is Mark Hanna, the industrialist and kingmaker, political consultant in Ohio, um, and in national politics throughout the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Hannah from Cleveland was the subject of our second-to-last show last year in Season 4 called Ohio versus Water. Uh, we won't talk a ton about Mark Hanna in this episode, which is unusual for any history of McKinley. Uh, one, we already did an episode on his important and consequential life, and two, I believe his impact on McKinley 
becoming president is often exaggerated. He's known as kind of the Karl Rove of his time, the campaign manager that got George W. Bush elected. A lot of similarities there, 100 years apart, but we won't focus as much on Hannity. You can go back and listen to that great episode we did. Uh, we also talk about two other presidential hopefuls from Ohio, Joseph Foraker of Cincinnati and John Sherman from Mansfield. There were four major figures that emerged in Ohio and in um, McKinley's time. One was McKinley. One was Mark Hanna, a very successful industrialist who emerged as a political force. And then the other two you mentioned, uh, John Sherman was the brother of William Tecumseh Sherman uh, and was a man of mark in his own right. He was a major politician, been in the House and the Senate for years, had been in the cabinet of of Hayes, uh, and... um, uh, Sherman had one last ambition. He wanted to be president of the United States uh, very badly. And Hannah, uh, who um, desperately wanted an Ohioan to be president of the United States, sort of gravitated uh, to Sherman and was a great, great supporter. But he also gravitated to, to uh, Joe Foraker, uh, who was a man of mark in his own right and had a background very much like McKinley's. Um, Civil War rose up through the ranks, uh, largely through battlefield uh, heroics, uh, and wanted desperate and was a lawyer, a significant lawyer, um, married into a political family, uh, and he uh, desperately wanted to rise up in Ohio politics so that he could become president. Uh, uh, Hannah uh, gravitated to Foraker and helped him uh, significantly to become governor. And uh, Foraker had had kind of a checkered political history up to that point, but uh, he emerged as a significant politician when he became governor, and Hannah helped him a great deal. And Hannah immediately thought that, well, I'm going to have a lot of say now in patronage questions and who's going to be getting uh, jobs in the four-acre administration, but four-acre kind of uh, kept him at arm's length. Hannah, uh, who was kind of starry-eyed about politicians, uh, accepted that. He didn't like it particularly, but he wasn't going to turn on the man until four-acre turned on John Sherman and didn't support him when uh, at the convention in 88. Uh, Hannah concluded uh, that Joe four wasn't a man you could trust. McKinley wins election to Congress the same year as his friend Rutherford B. Hayes is elected president in 1876. William McKinley becomes a rising star and the ultimate pro-business congressman uh, in the Republican Party. We talked to to Kevin Kern, a professor from the University of Akron, just how McKinley becomes ultimately known for the tariff of 1890. He entered Congress in 1877 after and after only two terms. 
he found his way onto one of the most powerful and prestigious committees in Congress, the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, so that's actually a pretty exceptional uh, rise for after just a couple of terms. And then he actually becomes chair of the uh, House Ways and Means Committee in 1889 and uses his considerable clout there to push through something called the McKinley Tariff of 1890, probably his, his uh, centerpiece of all of his legislative accomplishments in Congress. Wait a second. We, we hear tariffs. Uh, we still hear that word with President Trump. And we, we bring in Robert Mary, our, our historian and biographer, to explain tariffs, which are simply a tax the government imposes on imports, exports. Uh, the idea being with high tariffs, as McKinley loves, to make American goods cheaper uh, to the American consumer and thus promoting American business. It, it makes sense, uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. Well, some of those tariffs in the tariff of 1890 and the, the, on all kinds of goods, you, you just name them boots and clothes and uh, wine, and you could just tick them off. Uh, some of those tariffs were in the nature of 50 55%. So that if you wanted to buy a bottle of wine from France, for example, uh, you would get a you'd have to pay an extra 55% in order to have that wine vis-a-vis I don't know if it was California wine in those days. I I don't know, but I just use that as an example. Well, you got to remember the Republican Party of that time was a high tariff party. It believed in tariffs and the Republican Party had emerged out of the Whig Party, the previous Whig Party, and it was the high tariff party in America during its heyday. Uh, and the Whig Party kind of emerged out of the Federalists, and the Federalists uh, under Alexander Hamilton were also high tariffs. The free traders were the Democrats, were um, um, Andrew Jackson and James Polk. Uh, Polk, uh, my guy, I wrote a biography on Polk, and, and uh, he reduced tariffs to a greater extent and in greater magnitude than probably any other president uh, in our history. Um, and McKinley was responsible for one of the biggest tariff increases, the tariff of 1890, when he was in the House and was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, the tax writing committee, which also, of course, um, presided over tariffs. Uh, and McKinley really strongly believed that high tariffs protected American industry, which meant that that protected American workers from unfair competition from other countries. And and America was this big burgeoning country with huge markets, uh, and if, under this protection, uh, industry and and agriculture could produce great amounts of goods and sell to the American market, and everything would be great. And that was his view, and it was a standard view. Although he just kind of embraced it with greater force and and um, confidence than just about anybody else. We talked to Kevin uh, about his national renown, McKinley's uh, renown for his tariff policies. Uh, McKinley becomes a target of the Democrats as he gains more and more power on Capitol Hill. It's another classic example of what I call McKinley luck. When people and forces conspire against McKinley, he somehow you know, produces the opposite desired result that his opponents or the circumstances would, would usually dictate. Uh, and it happens again as the Democrats try and get him out of Congress. It raised tariffs on many goods to their highest levels yet. And uh, this was, of course, quite popular among businessmen and most Republicans. But 
Uh, it was also a bit of an Achilles heel for the him uh, among some constituencies. The higher tariffs had always been something of an anathema to Democrats. And as a result, McKinley had a huge target on his back from low tariff advocates. Um, and even Democrats, though, had to acknowledge what a force he had become in such a relatively short period of time. And probably the best proof of his popularity and potential as a congressman is the fact that the Ohio Democrats tried multiple times to gerrymander him out of his seat by redrawing his district. And not only did he beat that gerrymandering more than once, uh, but also on the last attempt, when he was put in a heavily Democratic district, you know, with Holmes County uh, and, and uh, very traditional rock rib Democrats there, and some of the leading national Republicans campaign for him. And he actually ended up losing by just a few hundred votes. And uh, so, yeah, the Democrats succeeded in gerrymandering him out. But ironically, their success only resulted in, in, uh, resulted in him rising to become governor of the state in the next state election. The presidency's up for grabs in 1888. President Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, uh, not super popular. McKinley's even being talked about as a potential candidate, even though he's only 45 years old. He goes to the convention. He stumps for his friend and Ohio senator. We discussed John Sherman, who's one of the leading candidates, and nearly accidentally gets himself nominated. And he earns the undying loyalty and backing, important economic backing, of Mark Hanna, the Ohio industrialist. Hanna concluded uh, that Joe Foraker wasn't a man you could you could trust, that you could count on, that he would... That he, that he wasn't there when the chips were down. And that was something that Hannah could not abide. And so he promptly turned his attention uh, to William McKinley, who there'd been a little bit of a boomlet in the convention because the convention was having a hard time uh, arriving at a candidate. Uh, so there's a little boomlet from McKinley. And McKinley stood on the chair and basically said, I will not accept uh, any nomination of this party at this convention. I am a John Sherman man, and I came here to support John Sherman, and I will continue to do so. And McKinley's stock rose dramatically, and Foraker's stock plummeted dramatically. And one of the fallouts of that was that Mark Hanna adopted McKinley as the man he wanted to uh, support and help, and he did, and became very, very significant uh, in McKinley's career from that point forward. There's an event in 1893 that starts history's uh, moving towards McKinley's direction to his presidency. It's the Panic of 1893. That's what we called economic depressions back then, panics. We're in the Panic of 2020 right now, uh, but 1893 was the worst economic depression in U.S. history at the time. We did a show in season three called Ohio vs. Unemployment uh, about the first march on Washington that was a result of the massive unemployment caused by the Panic of 1893. We're going to play you a clip from that episode, uh, and our guest Jerry Prout, a political science professor at Marquette University in Milwaukee, uh, about just what caused the Panic of 1893. This was really the first Great Depression, uh, maybe the worst, the, the worst panic certainly the country had ever experienced. Uh, by all measurements, the worst until the Great Depression in October of 29. The causes, as with most depressions, are hard to sort of ferret out, but, but as best economists have untangled it, it was a problem with all sectors of the economy in the 1880s uh, expanding rapidly, 
uh, agriculture overproducing, as is typical, and, they, and there was actually the beginning of a recession in agriculture during the 1880s. The railroad boom <clears throat> had uh, sort of eclipsed after Reconstruction, had, had been on uh, hyperactive, and uh, there was a uh, uh, bankruptcy in the Philadelphia and Reading line, which really alerted uh, investors to the the panic that was to come. And uh, so there were roughly about 15,000 business failures in this period. This is a four-year period that lasts till 1897. Um, and uh, on May 5th, when the market, the stock market collapsed, about 120 railroads go out of business, 650 banks, as I said, 15,000 business failures. The difficulty with all this, of course, is getting a handle on how many men were out of work, mostly men, since women weren't really counted in the workforce, but men weren't either because there was no real accurate way to uh, gauge how many. Uh, but the best estimates are around 3 million men. Uh, this is in an economy that's still over 50% industrial, but still largely farming. I would add it in your state of Ohio in 1894, then January, the Ohio State Legislature in 1894 refuses a plea from the unions to set up some kind of work relief. There's no social safety net in place as the depression takes hold. So it, it's a very uh, severe depression. McKinley is elected governor of Ohio in 1891, and shortly into his tenure, he is struck by a personal financial setback that had the potential to ruin his life, not just his political career. But again, somehow, in some way, with a little help or a lot of help from his friends, McKinley comes out the other side smelling like roses, or should I say really carnations. That was his favorite flower that he, he wore on his lapel. Um... And now, since it was McKinley's favorite flower, it's now actually the state flower of Ohio. We talk about this 1893 scandal with Kevin Kern um, and how it almost, almost finished off McKinley. Biggest low life of his time as governor happened in the wake of the Depression of 1893, which, of course, we, we, we think about the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, and we sometimes forget that the depression of 1893 was the worst depression that the country had ever suffered to that time. Uh, and McKinley is really caught flat-footed by this because he had signed on to be a guarantor of loans from an old friend named Robert Walker, who he assumed was a good businessman, and he most definitely was not. In fact, uh, when Walker uh, asked him to sign for more loans, he led McKinley to believe he was just re-signing the same renewals of loans, but he wasn't. And uh, it turned out that he had uh, uh, had McKinley as a guarantor for uh, uh, something like, it's close to $120,000. of, And so when the Depression hit and Walker went bankrupt, uh, McKinley finds himself on the hook for 120 grand, which is not an inconsiderable sum now, but at today's dollars, it would be like three and a half million dollars. He had nothing like that at his disposal. He faced financial ruin. But and here's where I mean this this idea of McKinley as a, uh, a, a scrupulously honest uh, person with great integrity. Here's where you know you, you see some real hard evidence of that. Um, even though he did not lose the money himself, he took full responsibility for his signature when he realized the magnitude of the problem. His first instinct was to basically um, resign the governorship, leave politics, go back to private law practice and earn the money to pay back the creditors, which would have taken him the rest of his life. 
Uh, now, fortunately for McKinley, he had other friends who were, in fact, very good businessmen, including John Hay, which uh, you discussed in an earlier episode of this podcast. Uh, and this, this group of people quickly raised the full sum. And even then, McKinley wants to know who they are so he can pay them back. You know, maybe if he becomes president, he can devote his presidential salary to it. But uh, they politely refuse to give him those those names. Uh, so an event like this could easily have derailed his political career. Uh, but the fact that many people faced ruin in the Panic of 1893 and the grace and integrity with which he handled it made him even more likable to a lot of people. So his biggest low life, the, the worst point of his political career, uh, unexpectedly turns out to be a highlight. And in the end, he ends up winning re-election as Ohio governor by the highest percentage of the vote of any candidate, Republican or Democrat, since the Civil War. The Walker incident made him even more popular. It made him relatable to Ohioans, like he can feel our pain here in this panic of 1893. McKinley is an immensely popular governor of Ohio, and he serves to 1895. We talked to Kevin about some of his gubernatorial successes. He was an extremely popular governor of Ohio at a time when the governor's office in the late 1800s seemed to be kind of revolving door of alternating Democrats and Republicans. Uh, <clears throat> The governor's office was uh, was only two years. It was only uh, you you were only like for two years. It had relatively little uh, power, and that was by design uh, in the Ohio Constitution. Uh, but it was a, a relatively prestigious office in terms of uh, national politics as well. And uh, uh, McKinley was very successful in building a broader coalition by speaking to the interests of numerous constituencies in Ohio. Now, business was already on board because of his pro-business high tariff policies, but he also appealed to working class voters as well. Going back to his time as a lawyer in Canton, he had always supported labor, even taking cases pro bono uh, for laborers against management. And as governor, he presided over major tax reforms, which were popular, and the creation of a state labor relations board. Uh, towards the end of his term, he helped organize a campaign to send food to thousands of people in southeast Ohio who were extremely hard hit by the economic depression that started in 1893. And furthermore, and I think this is significant, at a time of very strong anti-Catholic sentiment, especially among fellow Republicans, he conspicuously criticized groups like the American Protective Association, which pushed a strongly anti-Catholic agenda. And although he himself was a lifelong and devout Methodist, he was also outspoken in defending the principle of religious liberty. And, and this endeared him not only to many Catholics in general, but also to many Catholic immigrants who traditionally had tended to gravitate toward the Democratic Party. Uh, so all of these things, I think, were a good staging area for his vault into national elective politics. McKinley and his advisor, Mark Hanna, they have a plan, a plan to become president. And they start their secret campaign for the Republican nomination in 1895. They crisscross the country talking to delegates and potential vote, uh, donors to subvert the old system being controlled by a couple of political bosses in each party. 
McKinley starts a coordinated national campaign behind the scenes, which really was unheard of at the time. Kevin lays out how he and Hannah succeeded to circumvent and all but kill off this old National Party boss system in getting the nomination in 1896, his campaign of the people versus the bosses, and how he wins in 1896 on the first ballot, which was a real rarity in the period following the Civil War. A lot of historians talk about this election of 1896 as, as the first modern presidential election. And, and here is one of those uh, examples, little straws in the wind about how things are different. Now, McKinley is a very savvy politician and also a politician who liked to think of himself as his own man, that he was unowned. Uh, and he knew that there was a lot of resentment against the well-connected and powerful political bosses that controlled municipal and state politics at that time. And, you know, now let's be fair, McKinley certainly had some important connections too. people like Marcus Hanna. Uh, at the same time, he was something of an outsider to the major political machines in the Republican Party. So as early as 1892, he has this ambition to be president. He says in 1892, I, you know, I intend to be the Republican nominee and the president in 1896. I mean, he was he 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 doesn't spout this publicly, but uh, amongst his own private circle, he is uh, um, very confident that this is what he's going to do. But he and his good friend uh, Marcus Hanna who is a very wealthy businessman from Cleveland, know that the major Republican political bosses will be promoting their own candidates, people they can control. So Hannah McKinley literally spend years on a kind of stealth campaign to get their ducks in a row before the 1896 convention. You don't really have political primaries as we know them today, but you do have a lot of uh, state and local conventions. And that's where all the work is done in those days. Uh, so while, of course, publicly declaring that he's not seeking the presidency, McKinley relies on Hannah to work behind the scenes to quietly line up delegates for the convention, especially in the South, which was uh, kind of a backwater for the Republican Party. It was called the Solid South because Democrats always won it. So lots of Republicans overlook the South. But he realized that their delegates count just as much as delegates in the North. And uh, he actually courts these delegates in the South who a lot of the Northern Republicans ignore. Their pitch was to the rank and file Republicans who chafed under the control of those political bosses and for whom the slogan, the people against the bosses, really resonated. The political convention of 1896 rolls around. You had all these political bosses who thought they were just going to kind of sweep in there and do things as things had been done. Uh, they were chagrined to find out that Hannah and McKinley had already outmaneuvered them and getting commitments from enough of the party leaders and the delegates across the country for McKinley to win on the very first ballot, which was a real rarity in those days. Uh, so this is in one of those ways in which uh, he's changing the, the, the way politics is, is done uh, for this election. It fell to Kevin the unenviable duty of explaining the complicated, and as he describes it accurately, not sexy issue of the gold versus silver monetary standard. The seemingly inane monetary policy became, unfortunately for McKinley, the biggest issue of the 1896 campaign season. We talk with Kevin about what is the gold standard? How does McKinley fail to grasp its importance to voters in this depressed economy? 
And how would he straddle the issue to try and play both sides, gold and silver, in his campaign to become president in 1896? No, it is definitely not sexy. But it is, even though it's very hard for us today to imagine people getting into fistfights and arguing until the veins stick out of their foreheads about whether or not silver ought to be coined freely, you got, you got to understand this issue was one of the most divisive, one of the most hotly debated issues of the era. As for McKinley, uh, you're right. He was not really a dyed-in-the-wool gold bug. And like any good politician facing a deeply divisive issue, he does try to straddle it uh, a little bit. Now, early in his congressional career, he voted for something called the Bland-Allison Act, which required the government to buy and coin a certain amount of silver each month. Uh, so he did have a record of supporting some form of bimetallism. And even though uh, he probably, in his heart of hearts, preferred the gold standard, he, he kind of finessed the pro-silver folks by saying that he would be in favor of monetizing silver if all the other major economies around the world did so too. So he said, yeah, I consider silver, but you know, as soon as England and France and Germany signed on, yeah, we'll talk about it. Well, that's not going to happen. Very, very powerful people in the party uh, just would not budge on the issue, and he, he was grudgingly forced to accept it. So in public, McKinley basically has to toe the party line on the gold standard, but he really never wanted to talk about it. And his favorite tactic when faced with the currency issue was always to pivot back to his favorite subject of protective tariffs. That was his wheelhouse. And so uh, he, he, he basically decided not to engage on that issue directly. He would just uh, say, yeah, well, you know, sound money is good, but what we really need are these protective tariffs. As we move closer to the 1896 presidential election, our guest and author, uh, of McKin the book President McKinley, Architect of the American Century, Robert Mary lays out the political and electoral climate of the summer leading up to this monumental election, the importance of the gold versus silver argument, as well as some of these new tactics used by Mark Hanna in the McKinley campaign to try and reach the American voter. Farmers and the people in the South and the rural America were being just devastated by the panic of 1893, and they desperately wanted more liquidity, and that meant that they should, we should be moving towards a silver standard as well as a gold standard. Uh, and the people who thought they were more responsible from a monetary standpoint said, no, no, that's going to be just inflationary, and that's going to degrade our currency. And that was a huge, huge issue. Uh, and meanwhile, there was a big influx of immigrants into America around that time, starting in about 1890, the late 1880s, and up until the 1920s when it was curtailed through legislation. Uh, and so there were a lot of new voters, and new voters who didn't maybe thoroughly understand all of this. So the old politics was galvanizing the base. It was basically torchlight parades and big rallies and getting people all excited about the party that they already supported. But when William Jennings Bryan got the nomination in a time when this silver, um, the coinage of silver craze was taking over large significant parts of the country, uh, it became necessary to do a more of an educational type of campaign so that it wasn't enough merely to have torchlight parades because you needed to explain to people why the gold standard was the right thing and why high tariffs were the right thing. And so Hannah um, pioneered sort of 
the approach that was sort of inundate the country with materials, with printed material that explained uh, and explained in very uh, hearty and um, and um, resonant ways uh, why that silver thing was not a good idea and why the Republicans had the better arguments. Uh, and they they raised huge amounts of money. Hannah was very good at that. One thing that really struck me as I was researching more and more about this election is I just kept thinking about how similar 1896 was to today's politics, to our current system of haves and have-nots. This is not new. Economic disparity in the Gilded Age, but there are some serious similarities. That's not to say McKinley is Trump by any means, uh, but his soon-to-be Democratic opponent will certainly remind you of one or two Democratic contenders. Well, I think there are indeed some similarities. Uh, perhaps the disparity was a bit more stark back then, what we would call the middle class today is probably a bit larger now than it was then. Uh, but the actually the concentration of wealth among the top 10% was actually very similar. Uh, the thing is, you gotta remember that big business was a brand spanking new thing then. There had never been such immense amounts of money and wealth concentrated in that same way in the history of the United States to that point. And so while on one hand this creates a lot of rags to riches stories, it also creates an increasing amount of anger and resentment at these new captains of industry or robber barons, depending which side you're on. And this actually does help explain a lot of the political upheaval that characterizes that era. And of course, one could argue today. I mentioned that his opponents will remind you of some of today's presidential politicians uh, in the Democratic Party. But really two different Democrats combined to form his opponent, 36-year-old Congressman William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan is someone who will come up in multiple episodes this season. He runs for president three separate times as a Democrat. And he's a fantastic character. Really fascinating. He's the youngest major party nominee ever. He was a rising star. He had the youth and the oratory skills of a, of a younger Barack Obama and the radical pro-lower class uh, political views of Bernie Sanders. He, like Sanders, was, was very genuine. You may not agree with him, but you have to respect how passionately he believed in his message. Kevin Kern documented for us the meteoric rise of the boy orator of the Platte, William Jennings Bryan. Few people in American political history have experienced such a meteoric rise as William Jennings Bryan. Uh, he was born in Illinois, but he moved to Lincoln, Nebraska in his 20s. Uh, he was elected congressman at the age of 30, in part because of his gift of public speaking. He's a lifelong Democrat. He has a great deal of sympathy for some of the positions of the Populist Party, which was a, uh, an important third party of the time, especially in the call for the free coinage of silver. So in 1896, he's only 36 years old. He's been just a three-term congressman, but he had already become very well known throughout the West and the South because of his passionate speeches and writings promoting silver. So he was known uh, as the silver-tongued orator or the boy orator of the Platte, which is the river that ran through Nebraska. And he could keep even the largest crowd spellbound. And his critics, uh, they were apt to label him as a demagogue or someone had a too 
simplistic understanding of the modern economy. One of those critics once said uh, the, that the boy orator of the Platte was a particularly apt moniker for him because the Platte River was six inches deep, but half a mile wide at the mouth. Uh, so uh, that's kind of insulting both his uh, intelligence and his gift of gab. But nevertheless, no one could deny the power of his oratory at the Democratic Convention in 1896. He was nothing like the front runner coming to that convention. There were probably half dozen other candidates who were well known and better connected than he was. But they had not counted on the stealth campaigning of Bryan. Bryan had been pretty coy to this point, but like uh, Hannah and McKinley were doing in the Republican Party, he had been maneuvering behind the scenes. He had uh, many speaking engagements around the country, and then he kind of would surreptitiously meet with those leaders, talking to, writing to a number of key Democrats, convincing the leaders of some state delegations to support him, even before he announced he might formally be running. Uh, and he made sure he was on the floor during the platform debates. And this is where he brought out the big guns, called upon to speak for Silver. He delivered that extremely well-rehearsed stem winder of a speech passionately advocating for silver. And you're, you're gonna play this, this uh, recording of him, uh, which, uh, as you said, it was done many years later, but it's important to, to understand the effect of that speech at the time, because the, this, that last final peroration, you shall not press down on the brow of labor, this crown of thorns, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. And as he says that, crucify mankind on the cross of gold, he spreads his arms out wide like he's being crucified. I mean, it it was uh, just, it, it was the, the, the staging of this speech as well as the words uh, itself. And there was, there was like a moment of dead silence as he walked off the po podium. And he thought he had failed, but then all of a sudden pandemonium burst out. The delegates essentially crowd surfed him throughout the hall. It took half an hour to restore order. And that single speech helped turn Brian from what many people considered to be a dark horse to being a prime contender. Uh, balloting began the next day. Uh, Richard Bland of Missouri, who was the front runner, uh, he led in early ballots, but Brian had jumped uh, from an also ran up to second place in that first uh, uh, polling. And then he pulled ahead on the fourth ballot and won on the sixth. So he's, he's only one year older than the minimum age set for the presidency by the Constitution. And to this day, he's the youngest man ever nominated for the presidency by a major party. If they say bimetallism is good, but that we cannot have it until other nations help us, we reply that instead of having a gold standard, because England has, we will restore bimetallism, and then let England have bimetallism, because the United States has. If they dare to come out in the open field and defend the gold standards a good thing, we will fight them to the uttermost. Having behind us the producing masses of this nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. We talked about some of the innovations being used by the McKinley campaign. But William Jennings Bryan brings his own unprecedented campaign in 1896. No one had hit the campaign trail like Bryan. 
Uh, he makes more than 600 speeches. More than 5 million Americans are said to have seen him speak during this campaign. That's about 1 in 13 Americans. We had a population back then of about 65 million. That would be like 25 million Americans seeing him today in person. He's having rallies and he's railing against the moneyed interest, the top 1%. This campaign completely shattered that tradition. First of all, Brian went out on an aggressive whistle-stop campaign on a train, crisscrossing the country, traveling 18,000 miles, giving thousands of speeches. This was really unprecedented. Never before in American history had a campaign brought the candidate to people in such an intimate way all around the country. Kinley's campaign goes against the Bryan plan. I believe it to be one of the best examples of, of why McKinley and how McKinley was not controlled by Mark Hanna, as many writers and critics would allege at the time and for decades after his campaign. McKinley goes against Hanna's insistence and declares that he will remain in Canton. He's not going to travel the country like Hanna wanted him to. And Hanna's job was then to bring the world to McKinley. The front porch campaign is born and Canton, Ohio becomes the center of the political world for about four months. Trains are basically free for people to travel to Canton. The city experiences a huge economic boom. And if McKinley won't go to the world, Hannah decides to bring the world to McKinley. Uh, Hannah, you're right. H Hannah was desperate to get him out there because he said this guy, uh, um, Brian, is uh, he's burning up the track. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to go after him. We're going to have to meet him uh, town by town. And McKinley, in his inimitable in, in way, essentially said, I'm not going to try to compete with William Jennings Bryan. I can't compete with that um, because he's, he wasn't glib and clever and, and, uh, and flamboyant, which is what William Jennings Bryan was. And he said, you know, if, if, uh, if he does this, uh, if I do this and he'll do that and, and he'll, just, he'll just escalate – and I can't compete with him. So he basically said, I'm not going to try. It took a lot of courage and a lot of guts and I think um, uh, a lot of self-wisdom. But in any event, he crafted this concept. It wasn't totally original. I think that uh, Benjamin Harrison had uh, attempted something like this, but not for an entire campaign. And so he basically invited the country to come to him. Upwards of 700 or 750,000 people trekked to Canton, Ohio. Both sides would become the model for future campaigns. That's why it's, it's called the first modern presidential campaign. If, if Brian's campaign is known for this, you know, pioneering the populist approach, shake as many hands, make as many speeches, see as many voters, McKinley's campaign is known for two things. It's organization being one, the industrial-like output of materials and, and coordinated efforts. I mean, in October of 1896, McKinley stars in the first political commercial. It's filmed by the Edison Company, and he basically shows him coming out of the house and grabbing some papers from an aide. McKinley had massive support. Nearly a million people turned out for a parade in New York City in Manhattan a week before the election. He would actually listen to the din of the, of the festivities, the crowd, over the phone. His friends would call and just stick their phone out their windows in, in Manhattan. It's kind of the first instance of, of live streaming an event. Men like Charles G. Dawes, a 29-year-old lawyer, handpicked by McKinley to run his campaign out of Chicago. Dawes from Marietta, Ohio. He'd go on to an incredible career. Uh, he'll resurface later in this season. He's really ripe for an episode of his own in the future. 
This guy is the only person to have a number one song on the pop charts and to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He also was the vice president in the 1920s under Coolidge, a really fascinating guy. At this point, he's running McKinley's campaign out of Chicago, which is kind of the main office. Hannah's running, uh, you know, these Ohio and, and the New York City headquarters, you know, shaking money out of people. Dawes had no experience, and the two are bringing money into politics like no one had ever seen. John D. Rockefeller, uh, Mark Hanna's classmate, he donated $250,000 himself. That's almost like half of what Brian raised the whole campaign. Uh, we did a Rockefeller episode. You should definitely go here from season three, uh, Ohio versus Wealth. One of uh, a lot of our listeners, one of their favorite episodes. Um, but the journey, you know, that we took to Citizens United and the campaign finance mess we live in now, it begins in 1896 with Mark Hanna and William McKinley. And part of that was because Brian was his opponent. It's like the money Trump would have raised had, you know, from Wall Street if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee. Hannah just gets the money out of these scared executives and, and industrialists, and he raises millions of dollars. In history, it's reported to be anywhere from like three to five million. Brian was more like five or six hundred thousand dollars raised. Although the money raised is much different, this election would be very, very close. Another way it was really the first, in some ways, the first modern presidential election is the way in which it was centralized to a degree that had never been before. You still had all the state uh, uh, parties who were doing their usual thing, but Marcus Hanna set up important field offices and a kind of national headquarters and really ran this as a centralized top-down campaign in a way that really had not been done to this degree before. He pioneered a number of campaign strategies that we just accept as commonplace today. Direct mail. Uh, The McKinley campaign put out 120 million pieces of literature. That's two pieces of literature for every man, woman, and child in the country. Uh, He just blanketed the country with this campaign literature. Uh, Furthermore, uh, as we talked about at at the front porch rallies, uh, they would tailor their message to individual constituencies. They printed their campaign literature in a number of different languages so they could reach out to different immigrant communities. They would do the earliest kind of polling. They would go out and they would find out, they would ask questions of different people in different places to find out which issues resonate with them. And based on that polling, they would tailor their message. They would emphasize this issue in this place and that issue in the other place. And of course, the probably the biggest thing is the thing that made this all happen, and that is the immense amount of money that was spent in this. Hannah basically calls all the leading uh, industrialists, all the leading bankers, say, look, you don't want uh, silver currency if... Uh, if you don't want Brian as president, you got to pony up, and you got to pony up now. And he raised uh, northwards of like three point five million dollars, uh, which uh, was like seven to ten times the amount that Brian was able to raise. Uh, and so, it really, in terms of money, it just it wasn't a fair fight. But it does show the uh, again this 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 way in which big money becomes uh, attached to. Uh, to presidential elections. On November 3rd, 1896, America went to the polls. The results were tight. McKinley took majorities in the urban centers of the country, Brian the rural. 
McKinley took every state east of the Mississippi and north of the Confederacy. He took the border states of Kentucky and Maryland, as well as California. Bryan swept the South, winning every state from Virginia west to Texas. He won almost every western state, including the Plains and the Rockies. McKinley won the four biggest states then, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Ohio. And he also won 271 electoral votes. 7.1 million people voted for him, 51% of the electorate. He flipped 10 states. The Democrats won in the last election. Bryan had 6.5 million people vote for him, 47%. 51-47, 176 electoral votes. On Thursday, two days after the election, Bryan telegrams McKinley to congratulate him. And just like that, William McKinley was the 25th president of the United States. Throughout this season, we'll speak with Kyle Condon from the University of Virginia Center for Politics. He's the managing editor of the famous political analyst Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball political newsletter uh, and website. He's busy in this election year, but the Ohio University grad and Cleveland native will join us throughout the season to discuss different presidential election results in Ohio and nationally. He's actually our very first interview of the show back in uh, 2016. Um, we interviewed him um, and launched a podcast. It was our second episode, Ohio versus the Electoral College. I implore you to buy his book from 2016, Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President. His book looks at elections from 1896 uh, to today. We'll link it in the notes. And because it was really our guide for the entire season uh, of, of the Ohio versus the presidency, we read the book again. 1896 to today, it's a period in which Ohio has correctly picked the president in 27 of 29 elections. We talked to Kyle about the 1896 results and how the urban-rural divide that became so apparent in the vote count and how McKinley's win sets up a new era of Republican domination. In 1896, uh, Ohio voted very close to the national, you know, the national average and best counties for William Jennings Bryan in 1896. Uh, many of them were kind of in uh, northern, uh, western, and central Ohio. A lot of uh, uh, very rural, kind of sparsely populated counties. Uh, and then the, the the McKinley vote centers were really in northeast Ohio and in some of the big urban counties. So yeah, the, the 1896 election was very competitive. And it also uh, took place in a, in a kind of a longer uh, era in the late 1800s, where the country persistently had very close presidential elections, much like modern times. And you even had a few elections where the um, the popular vote winner did not actually win uh, the, the electoral college. But right. 1896 represented something of a breakthrough in that William McKinley, though he did not win in a blowout, did better than um, Republicans before him uh, and really began to uh, assert Republican dominance in major urban areas and also, I'd say, sort of in the North and West more broadly. So at this time period, there's not a there's not a huge African American population in Ohio, only maybe a few percentage points of the population. But um, African Americans, to the extent that they 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 voted and could vote, um, were more of a Republican constituency, um, really up until Franklin Roosevelt. That's when African Americans really start to trend more toward um, the, uh, the the Democratic Party. This was a time when American politics kind of resembled uh, the political allegiances of the Civil War, in that you had um, a very democratic Democratic Party South, a Republican North, and then some of the battleground uh, states were, were actually states like Ohio that 
were kind of in terms of its settlement patterns divided between north and south. So Ohio was very competitive. Indiana was very competitive. Illinois was very competitive. Also, uh, New York State was often very competitive. And McKinley's victory was more impressive than, say, Benjamin Harrison or James Garfield. Uh, and McKinley set up this 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 era uh, stretching from 1896 through uh, the Great Depression, where the Republicans win every presidential election except for two. And that was um, when Wilson won two terms. But of course, Wilson benefited from a split in the Republican Party. When I was a senior in high school, I, I took the first ever AP American history class at the Grandview Heights High School. There's about 12 of us, and the class was taught by a guy named Bill Kilborn, great guy. And he taught it like a kind of an intense college class. And I remember we had a, a final, and the question on one of them was, was about the 1896 presidential election. Why was it so important? Or why was it a realignment election in American history, something like that? I remember panicking at the time. I, I didn't remember what I came up with it for that answer then but i basically posed the same question to our guest professor of history kevin kern of the university of akron and in closing here for part one we'll listen to his excellent answer to that question which was certainly better than mine back in 1999 uh, and we'll talk about how mckinley's victory would change the political landscape for two generations this is usually called a realignment election one of those periodic elections in american history that changed the political landscape for a generation to come. All the elections of the late 1800s, just about all of them were very, very close affairs where the Democratic candidate, the Republican candidate, were not only were they very closely matched, in fact, of course, Grover Cleveland uh, and uh, Samuel Tilden are two Democratic candidates who actually win the popular vote but lose in the Electoral College. But also Congress keeps switching hands uh, between Democrats and Republicans, one house or the other. So it's a very narrowly contest-tested period of time. Uh, what this election does, thanks uh, in large part to McKinley, and his message and his way of reaching out to various constituencies that had actually tended to vote Democratic before, uh, he starts creating that realignment. Remember, he, as we talked about earlier, he, uh, he reaches out to Catholics. Catholics had been held at arm's length by most Republicans. McKinley takes a very public stand for uh, freedom of religion, of uh, religious liberty. Uh, he also appeals to that working class. This is the working class that uh, Brian really hoped to seize on as part of his constituency. But McKinley was able to convince a lot of these working class people that their best interest lay with the Republican Party rather than the Democratic Party. And so there is this huge shift. People, of course, he gets elected in 1896, but then he gets elected by an even greater majority in 1900. And then the Republican Party basically is the dominant force in, uh, on the national level, really until the late 1920s. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading. Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon 
so many books, which will we choose? I like reading. I like reading. Our book recommendation for this and the next episode is 2017's President McKinley, The Architect of the American Century by Robert Mary, our guest. You can find that at Barnes & Noble. It's still on the shelves. I just saw it last week. Uh, it's a fantastic book, and it really shone a light on McKinley as a very important uh, and too often overlooked president. We always like when we get these big-time authors, we want to talk with them about just the process. So we asked Robert about his research for this book. Um, but no, I had to go to Washington a lot. I spent a lot of time uh, at the McKinley Papers at the Library of Congress in the reading room in the in the Madison Building, uh, which I've spent a lot of time there for other projects. Um, I spent hours and hours and hours, days and day weeks actually there. Uh, and I went to Canton uh, to the uh, McKinley Library Museum. Um, where there were some letters that weren't necessarily all available. Uh, and also I was looking for photographs and other things. So, so yeah, but, but um, um, that, was the, that was the main body of research, the uh, Canton Library and the Library of Congress. Um, but uh, one of the things I do in researching my, my histories, my biography, is I do a lot of newspaper reading. Uh, and I follow the events through the news day by day. Uh, and I was able to do that uh, both through um, some of it through the Ohio papers, but not awful lot. The Washington Post and the New York Times proved extremely valuable. Uh, and so I went through them with a fine tooth comb. Robert, who traveled to the McKinley Presidential Library and Museum in Canton, Ohio, uh, there's a great monument as well. Uh, but there's two museums to McKinley here in, in Ohio. The McKinley Birthplace Museum in Niles. Uh, there's an amazing statue of McKinley out front. And if you're in the Youngstown area, go check out this awesome museum once it reopens after uh, coronavirus. Thanks again to Amber for joining us. We'll hear from her again later this year in our episode on Ohio's First Ladies. That'll do it for part one. Coming up on part two of William McKinley vs. the World, we'll tackle his consequential presidency how he will take the U.S. from a regional power to a world power, how we'll transition to the um, really an American empire. He'll lift us out of the panic of 1893 and deliver prosperity, economic growth unprecedented in the first century of American economics. He'll win an international war against a European power, a sweeping re-election, and he will usher in the American century. All that before tragedy strikes him in the Temple of Music in Buffalo, New York. Guys, we're so happy to be back. Download part two of William McKinley vs. the World for the exciting conclusion. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at Ohio v. the World, Instagram at Ohio v. the World Podcast. Season five is off and running. We'll see you on the flip side for part two of William McKinley vs. the World. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Right.